Yeah, I think it's working. Uh, I, I drew this timeline up here, and we were talking about, um, I mean, which I hope, oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is as straight as I can get it. <laughs> you know, it's, it was that cocktail that I drank an hour ago. <laughs> I got to stop that. Um, um, we talked about the covenant of grace um, made with Christ from all eternity, okay? And then, and then I put another little point in here that this covenant of grace beca- begins to work itself out and flesh itself out into, uh, oh, the Genesis 15 passage um, comes to mind where, where it's worked out with Abraham. And uh, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And then 430 years later, the law was added. And then Paul is dealing with uh, the Galatian church here. Okay. And though. So the argument of the, of the section from last week, beginning at verse 15 and going through verse 18, um, was that, um, that, the, that the promise made to Abraham was in no way supplanted or negated by the, the uh, inclusion of law. Uh, and that's what Judaism says today, um, or at least... Certainly, the Galatians were being tormented with by a group called the Judaizers. Um, Saying, in essence, that you must indeed embrace Christ, but you must add to that circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. And so his argument in this little paragraph, beginning at um, verse 15, going through verse 18, is that this came 300, 430 years later and by no means negates this. And if it did negated that, then it negates, of course, the covenant made with Christ in all eternity. Okay? Um, so th- that was uh, mentioned or um, hopefully somewhat clearly last week. But guys, um, when you talk about promise, and that's the language, if you look at the text, that's the language that he uses. Um, uh, look at verse 18. For if, uh, if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Um, the, the, the provision or the, uh, the entrance into a relationship with Abraham via a promise... Um, when you when you view your relationship with God via a promise, then the promise has to do with things that God are gonna, is going to do. God says, I will, I will, I will, in a promise. But in law, God says, thou shalt, uh, thou shalt not. Promise sets forth a religion of God. Uh, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. Law sets forth another religion of, of man's duty, man's works, man accomplishments, man responsibilities. And that's why it's so popular. <laughs> that's why it's the default mode of, of, of 95% of the populace of the world. Because it emphasizes what man does and, and, and of course, promise emphasizes... Uh, things that God has done. Now, I, I bring that back up tonight to, because this is the thing that I, I wanted to say to you. Um, 
Guys, we enter into the, the, the household of faith by this, this act of embracing the finished work of Christ by faith. And then somehow we, we, we turn a switch or shift a gear or however you want to say it, and all of a sudden we're back into law. We're back into some kind of performance mentality that, that um, through which we try to establish our identity and our worth and our value by performing well. And you know, that, that works really nicely until your performance is bad. And then you lie awake at night, um, wrestling in bed, over the failure, your own failure to keep the law. And um, what, I, what, I, what, I wanted to say, what I wanted to tell you is, in the midst of your own conscience attacking you, and your conscience, your own conscience becoming your enemy, then this is what you need to say to your conscience. Mr. Conscience, the law is 430 years too late. I've, I've already, uh, this has already happened to me, and so the law really has nothing to do with me concerning um, my reconciled relationship with God. I speak to my own conscience and tell the law to leave me alone. And one of the reasons I say is, it's just 430 years late. <laughs> no, you're, you, you, um, you cannot condemn me anymore. Um, folks, part of the downside of our own performance mentality is that we go through way too much uncertainty. Did you hear me? We go through way too much uncertainty and doubtfulness about the status of our soul. And it is, it is, it is the law that I think that Satan uses to condemn us. You've broken it, there's no question. But the law was added 430 years later after my relationship was already sealed with God. And so I say to Satan who torments me by showing me how I violated the law, that's nice, but you're right. I did do that. But this was settled 430 years before the law ever entered. Leave me alone. Um, guys, um, I, I, um, I like to uh, fancy myself a theologian. I'm not, I mean, when, when you put me in the category with an R.C. Sproul, I, I pale into insignificance. But, but I like to think of myself as a, as a theologue, okay? People react to theology with a kind of a negative reaction because they think that somehow theology divides, somehow the, uh, uh, theology is dry, somehow it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm telling you, it is theology. It is a sound understanding of theological truth that is going to get you through the, own, your, the torment of your own soul. I'll tell you what's going to, where it's going to be really useful to you. On the deathbed. Um, uh, you're going to need a, a rich understanding of this little timeline sooner or later. I mean, I, 
I'm sure it's straighter uh, in in places. But but guys, you, I mean, this is not to um, to impress you with some kind of theological workbook. It's to remind you that law in no way supplants promise. Um, you're going to need that. Um, particularly when you're guilty of having violated it. Now, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to encourage you to violate it. I'm not trying to celebrate violations of the law, but I'm simply saying that the law did not justify you. Never did, never could, never will. Um, it's We entered this relationship via promise. And that emphasizes what God has done as opposed to what you have done. And that is a... That is a distinction that will serve you well. I uh, offer it to you, hopefully, for your safekeeping. Okay, Uh, that wrapped up. We turn to verse 19. (laughs) Before I read verse 19, um, I told you last week that there are three sections, uh, uh, three paragraphs, kind of, in Galatians chapter 3, where he is trying to answer the question that he posed in verse 2. In verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How'd you do it? And and I I paraphrased it. How did you become a Christian? How did you get saved? Was it by law or was it by by the hearing of faith? And so he's got these three arguments. We just covered the third argument in verses 15 through 18. We did that last week, okay? Three arguments to try and establish how it is that any of us are rightly reconciled to God. So, for Paul, at least to his own satisfaction, uh, he he has proved, and and perhaps for the satisfaction of the Galatians, he he has proved that the way of salvation is via um, the promise received through faith. But the Judaizers, uh, who are tormenting the Galatians, um, he's thinking they're going to object. This is going to be their objection. Um, because if, if a man is saved via promise through faith, then in the mind of a, of a, a, a Judaizer, then what Paul has done is that he's proved too much. He's proved way more than he needed to, or proved, let's just say he's proved too much because he has demonstrated that the way of salvation is through a promise and that the law brings a curse. Okay, if that's so, then it would seem to follow, number one, that the, that the law has no purpose at all in the scheme of salvation, And two, that the law is actually opposed to the gospel. Um, And that's going to be very hard to swallow for a Jewish audience who have been raised on the law. Oh, then Paul, if you're right, then the the law has no role to play and it's actually in opposition to the gospel. That's that's the the logical... uh, uh, applications of what you've just taught. Um, so, Paul begins to answer those charges um, by, de- by denying both of those conclusions. 
that is, that it has no role to play. And secondly, that it's actually in opposition to the gospel. And he then begins to explain that the law was given not to save a man, but rather to reveal his sin. That the law does play that role, that it is temporary, and that it is is inferior to the promise because unlike the promise... The, uh, the law was given through a mediator. Now, we're going to get to that next week. That's another, that's another whole discussion. But I say all of that to say this. That should explain the opening question of verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Gang, um, this is what's called an ad hominem argument. That's a Latin phrase that means to the man. Ad hominem, to hominem, to the man. What he's doing is that he is precluding arguments that he thinks exist in his opponent. When I was with Procter & Gamble, um, you know, they hired me in, I don't know, uh, they hired me in June, and uh, Susan and I got married in July, and um, uh, we got transferred in August. And uh, right after we moved to Fort Lauderdale, they send me up to... Um, Cincinnati, Ohio, you know, the, the company headquarters, and they're going to teach me how to be a salesman. You know, we're going to get that boy how to sell our product. And, and this is one of the things that they, would, that they taught. And by the way, one of the greatest sales organizations in the world is Procter & Gamble. But here's one of the things that I remember they taught us. And, and it was all really just, you know, uh, <laughs> mind-numbing to me. But, but um, here was one of the things. I'm going to go into the office of a buyer. Okay, And I want him to feature my product, Crisco Shortening. Ah, I want him to feature Crisco. I want him to sell it for three cans for a dollar. Um, I, I want him to you know, mark it down and stack it high and sell it cheap. Sell a lot of it. And so I go in there with all these reasons as to why he should sell my product. And why, you know, but you know, this is what, et cetera, et cetera. And here's what they taught us. When I'm finished with my argument, with my presentation, if the buyer still has a question, I have not done my job. Because I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to know what he's going to ask. I'm supposed to, he's sitting over there thinking, well, you know, if I do that, but I'm supposed to be answering that before he even asks it, because I know what he's going to ask. Gang, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. That's what an ad hominem argument is. He is, he knows what's in the mind of his, of his objectors, and he's saying, they're saying, well, now, you know, Paul, if you're right about all this uh, promise stuff, then what you've done is that you have completely eliminated any role for the law at all. Uh, you know, the law has no role. And not only that, um, Paul, um, what, you, what you're teaching would make uh, the law opposed to the gospel. That, ladies and gentlemen, that's what he's going to answer in this following little section. He's, he's, he's precluding the objections that his audience would have by answering them before he asked them. 
That's what verse 19 starts with. Oh, I know what you guys are thinking. Now that you've just heard me teach about the promise, now you're thinking, okay, Paul, what purpose then does the law have? Isn't that what he says? Um, what purpose does, then does the law serve? And from here, ladies and gentlemen, all the way to the end of the chapter, that is the question before the house. What purpose then does the law serve? <laughs> and you know, guys, we, we've talked about this before. But I'm telling you, I think Christians are still confused about Sinai, the Ten Commandments. Um, so, and by the way, one of the reasons that you've heard me uh, treat this before is because Paul treated it three or four times. Uh, Romans 3, Romans 7, he treats it. Uh, and now he's going to treat it again. Um, gang, um, what good is the law? That's, that's the question. Um, does it have any function uh, at all? Um, Judaism answers the question very simply. The role of the law is to save you. That is, you keep it, you get, you're a saved man, and you don't keep it, you're a lost man. But ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, the answer in the, in the world of uh, grace and gospel is far more nuanced than that. It's, I shouldn't say, use the word nuanced. It's not really nuanced. It's pretty clear. He's going to answer it very clearly in just a second. Um, but um, law and promise, he's going to teach us, support each other. Um, we use law to prove us holy. That is, Judaism does. Judaism uses law to prove themselves holy when the purpose of the law was to prove the very opposite. That you're not holy. Um, uh, the law does not tell us about salvation. It tells us about transgression. And that's what he answers in the rest of verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. So there's his first answer, ladies and gentlemen. What role does it play? It was added because of transgressions. Now, guys, you know, for those of you who are regular attenders here, I'm glad you come often, but you probably heard me say this before because Paul treats it before. So we're going to go back and treat it again. I, I want you to keep your finger there, and I want you to go over. Uh, uh, just keep this little sentence. It was added because of transgressions. All right? Now, go over to Romans chapter 7 with me. What we're trying to answer, or what Paul is trying to answer, is the question that he posed in the first half of verse 19. What purpose then does law serve? Um, Romans chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's what the Jewish world was saying. 
if Paul is right, then Paul, you just made the law sin. Certainly not, says Paul. On the contrary. I would not have known sin except through the law. That's exactly what he's saying in Galatians chapter 3.19. I would not have known sin except through the law. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you get convinced that you're really in need of a Savior? Somebody preaches the law to you. Um, to not preach the law, ladies and gentlemen, is to do you a vast disservice because it allows you to live under the um, illusion that you're pretty righteous when you are not. Um, now, and you know the, the big argument that Paul continues right here in this little Romans 7 passage um, uh, about um, uh, coveting. Um, I think it's in verse 10, which is... Um, the, 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 the law expressed that you shouldn't commit adultery. Paul says to himself, I haven't committed adultery. The law says you shouldn't steal. Paul says, I haven't stolen. The law says you shouldn't lie. Paul says, I haven't lied. Then he comes to the 10th commandment. And the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet. What do you covet with? Where does coveting go on? I mean, we know where, you know, how... Theft goes on. Somebody uses a hand to take something that's not theirs or, you know, files a 1040 that's not true. We know how to do that. But once the law said to Paul, oh, coveting, what do, what do I covet with? It was that law, ladies and gentlemen, that laid Paul bare. You know, when it comes to uh, adultery, well, I hadn't committed adultery. Neither have I. And I bet you a lot of you haven't. Does that make us holy? And see, that's the way Judaism uses the law. I haven't committed adultery. I'm holy. When the purpose of the law, ladies and gentlemen, was added because of transgressions, I would not have known sin were it not for the law. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Coveting. Huh. What's coveting? Well, uh, here's maybe a useful synonym. Envy. Well, I haven't committed adultery, but have I ever envied? You know, gang, it is a, it is a, um, it is a sad prospect for somebody to stand before the law and it not slay them. Because apparently they don't understand law. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, for me, the Tenth Commandment's bad enough. There's enough there to expose me, uh, just in coveting and envying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but go to commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Uh-oh. I would say every mother and father in this room has probably violated that one. What did we worship? Oh, you know. Don't you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, um, I remember R.C. Uh, in the... Uh, 
In the New Testament, Jesus says, um, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, um, and your neighbor as yourself. Remember that? I remember R.C. saying, I haven't loved the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind for 30 seconds in my life. For 30 seconds. You see, gang, gang that's, that's what the law is supposed to do. The law is simply supposed to slay you. The law was added because of transgression. I would have never known sin were it not for the law. Gang, the Bible is arranged um, in a way that before you get to the gospel, you've got to pass through Exodus 20. You've got to get through law. The law is supposed to prepare you for grace. It was added so that you would know that you're sinful. It is a wonderful gospel purpose. A wonderful gospel design to it. It was intended to slay you so that you would not continue to play a silly spiritual game about how righteous you are. Ladies and gentlemen, the only people who can, can live a, comforting themselves with their self-righteousness are people who do not know the law. Um, why did God add law? Because without it, you would have never known just how big your need is. You know, guys, um, if I were to somehow succeed in um, going through the city of Germantown tonight and removing all speeding signs... You know, speed limit signs. Take them all down. Every last one of them. Get rid of them all. How fast could you drive tomorrow? As fast as you wanted to. But once, once a law goes up, if you exceed 35, you're a lawbreaker. Law came into existence. So that in a sense, sin could come into existence. Um, that's, that's law's purpose. To bring sin. I mean, it was always there. We just, wasn't aware, we just weren't aware of it. But to... Um, you know, let, let me just... Let me just I'll even close with this. You know, guys, I, I did this back in John 14. I never forget, but I mean, I won't forget. You have already forgotten. Uh, but um, because I, when, when I said it, people were somewhat shocked. It was something that Jesus said about the, 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 the most grievous offense of all is to not believe. Um, the most wicked of all sins is unbelief. Why is that? Why is the most wicked of all sins unbelief? I mean, do you get that? Think about it. Why is unbelief so awful? Because unbelief says, I'm good enough to save myself. Um, unbelief says, 
I don't need a savior. I'm doing quite well, thank you, without one. Unbelief says, I have a self-salvation project and it's working quite nicely, thank you. Unbelief says that as I stand in this particular uh, arrangement, I'm good enough to appear in the presence of God. And there's only one thing that will disabuse you of such nonsense. You know what that is? Law. The law. The law rightly understood. The law. Which is the only thing that will tell you just how bad off we are. So, so, so why was the law given? Oh, he's going to give you, he's going to give you some more, um, um, answers to this question, but he poses it in verse 19 and he gives you number one, it was added because of transgressions. Ladies and gentlemen, you owe a great debt of service to law. Now, um, I never go to law as a means of justification. You got that? Law came 430 years too late. The only way I'm justified is via promise, via what God did, what he's, his promises to me and his provisions made for me. I never go to law to justify. It's to law that I go to exacerbate the problem. Which drives me to the promise. I mean, I, 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 I think you probably understood that. But why is it, ladies and gentlemen, that we continue to default to... Um, Performance-based living as if law obedience makes me more valuable. I don't, I don't, I don't get much of that. Um, but I'm telling you, there is a gospel use of law. It's the only thing that I know of. It's the only thing that's needed. You know, um, there, there is such a... Um, a maudlin sentimentality that it infects the church because we can only think of nice, um, comfortable little messages when the church, what the church needs to hear is the thunder that comes from Mount Sinai. And you know what that does? 
it makes us appreciate that Savior all the more. It draws us to the Savior all the more readily. It, it, um, it, we disavow this foolishness that I'm really a good person. No, you're not. But the good news is our goodness never saved us in the first place. It's the, um, it's the beauty of the Savior. And the law continues to drive us to Him. That's one of the roles that the law plays, and we'll come back and look at a couple of others next week. That's good. Our Father, I, I do pray that you'll make this crystal clear in the minds of your people that, um, that though Paul's audience may have been unclear, might this audience not be unclear? Might they discover the great genius behind the gospel and the role that law plays in that gospel message? That the one thing that makes us oh so ready to hear about Christ's finished work is the, um, is the realization that we are such violators. And knowing of our violations, we cry out, what must I do to be saved? And the gospel answer is, of course, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. What a sweet and wonderful and uh, glorious message which matches the need of the sinner so perfectly. Thank you, O oh God. Thank you for its provision. Thank you for finding a way to save people as wicked as we are. We commit ourselves to serving you well and representing you rightly. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.